All right, welcome Fireflies. This is our video, which is going to be bonus content posted after the release of the debate that uh, Paul had with Brett Dennis. So we wanted to kind of get our thoughts out on the table, talk about the debate, what we felt about it, maybe talk about some things that we wish we could have said during the debate or some thoughts about some things that we could have responded to during the debate but ran out of time. So we've got just a lot of things that we're going to talk about during the debate and hopefully this will be enriching and it will be a good supplement to the actual debate itself. So I thought we'd start off. I'll give a few of my thoughts about the debate. Overall, I was reviewing it. I didn't get through watching the debate again, but uh, since I moderated it, I've already seen it, obviously. So, but um, my general thoughts are, I thought it was really well done. I think it was very respectful. I think Brett uh, did a really great job at, you know, sticking to time and sticking to the, to the topic. Uh, I thought his PowerPoint slides were well organized. Excuse me. I thought his PowerPoint slides were well organized and I thought he was very articulate in his position. And uh, Paul, I think you were as well. I think you were very, you obviously put a lot of time and effort into preparing the material that you presented. So overall, I thought it was really great. Um, especially I was watching uh, another one of those, um, the gospel truth debates where Marlon moderates it tonight. And it was pretty rough. <laughs> there was a lot of talking over each other. There was a lot of kind of uh, very heated discussions. So I was really pleased with uh, the way our debate turned out. The only thing I can mention that I felt like that I failed at um, was that I, I, I could have moderated a little bit better. But part of that also was some of the technical difficulties I had. My microphone just like stopped working at some point. <laughs> and I was checking all the connections and trying to figure out where, where, where the problem was. So that was a little bit weird. But um, yeah, so uh, there were a couple of times where I tried to step in and, and it's like everybody kept talking and I was like, oh, <laughs> what's happening? So that was a bit strange. But uh, so what about you, Paul? What are your general thoughts about the debate? Yeah, I was um, I was pleased with it. You know, it's uh, something that Brett and I had discussed for for quite a while. We had initially had it on our docket uh, to do as part of a podcast episode uh, late last year. And it actually ended up getting pushed uh, to this year in uh, early February. Um, which was probably best for for both of us as it, as it gave us more time to prepare. But uh, yeah, I, I appreciated um, Brett's uh, concessions that he made at the beginning. I think it made it very clear what he was and was not arguing. Um, and, uh, you know, just appreciate his demeanor uh, throughout. He was very respectful, um, which, um, you know, my history with him online is that uh, we're generally uh, respectful with one another. Um you know, we, we disagree uh, pretty vehemently with each other's positions um, and have, you know, stridently debated uh, online. Uh, and, and sometimes that uh, has, has gotten maybe a little bit heated, but um, he and I have always been uh, good at recognizing when that's becoming the case and kind of taking a step back, both of us from that. Um, I appreciate that about him and I appreciate his friendship that we kind of have ongoing. So I was glad to be able to do it. Yeah, I thought, I thought you guys, I could tell that you guys had respect for each other, that you felt passionately about your positions, but at the same time, you wanted to, you wanted to give the other side their fair time to share their opinions. So I really appreciated that. Um, so my question for you is, in terms of what was presented there, in terms of Brett's positive, his present, presentation for the case of the Book of Abraham being ancient scripture, had you been aware or had he presented that in the past or were you aware of all of that material or is there anything that kind of caught you off guard? Um, I've definitely seen 
uh, I think uh, most everything he presented uh, previously uh, in in various points discussing the book of Abraham with him. Um, I think I was a little bit caught off guard with the examples that he provided. His his method of arguing for the book of Abraham uh, is really nuanced and, and quite different than any other uh, than many other Latter Day Saint apologists will go to. Um, and you know, his position is is essentially that um, there are these areas where Joseph Smith seems to have gotten some things correct. Um, for example, uh, he brought up uh, the, uh, I believe it's um, item nine on uh, facsimile one uh, as being an altar. Um, and he, you know, he argued for uh, that being the case. Um, and then, you know, from there goes to arguing that uh, the, um, the apocalypse of Abraham, which is an ancient uh, pseudepigraphic uh, document about Abraham produced during the second temple period, um, that it presents Abraham, uh, sacrificing on an altar. So his, his arguments can get fairly complex. Um, but from what I understand, the gist of his argument is that this is an altar, uh, in the Egyptian, uh, drawing in the Egyptian understanding, the understanding, you know, even scholars understanding of the Egyptian is that this, this figure, uh, is an altar. Um, and Joseph Smith refers to it in his, at least in his uh, descriptions of on facsimile two as an altar. Uh, facsimile one, he refers to it as Abraham in Egypt. Um, so he's not consistent in, in the way that he refers to it. Um, but, you know, he argues then that uh, because both the book of Abraham and the apocalypse of Abraham represent Abraham as sacrificing on an altar, uh, that Joseph Smith must have known something about Egyptian uh, because that he seems to have gotten the identification of, of an altar. Correct. Um, I, I can appreciate that approach um, where I, where it doesn't um, hold up for me though, is that there are, and I, and I mentioned this in the debate, there are so many other uh, interpretations that Joseph Smith made that are not correct. Um and so the fact, you know, and, and even if you look at that one example of, of the altar, if you look at the apocalypse, apocalypse of Abraham, uh, the book of Abraham presents, uh, and I believe Brett even called out this, this uh, discrepancy, the book of Abraham presents Abraham as building an altar to the Lord. Um, when you read the apocalypse of Abraham, however, uh, Abraham is brought to a mountain where an altar is already there. And in, in the apocalypse of Abraham, um, I believe Abraham calls out to uh, the angel that's, that's leading him to the, to this mountain, you know, here, like here's an altar already existing. What, how am I to sacrifice? There's nothing here to sacrifice. And it's then that animals are presented to Abraham to sacrifice. So there's, there's kind of a major discrepancy there between the texts. So um, it, while, while on the one hand, it may look like, oh, Joseph Smith was able to, by revelation, uh, present a story that is similar to the apocalypse of Abraham, which is an ancient document. Um, how could he have known such a thing without revelation? Uh, when you really dig into the details, the discrepancies make it so that uh, it's pretty clear that he's not repro reproducing what was uh, in the apocalypse of Abraham. 
they're, they're, they're just very different. And so um, ultimately the, the method of argumentation that Brett takes does not, does not land uh, as, as viable for me. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's one thing I, in reviewing his opening statement, he really focused on the altar motif and it's kind of, I see why you'd want to do that because that's probably one of the strongest connections you can make between anything and the papyri. There's really not much to go on if if you're just looking at the the facsimiles and what there's translated there. There's also the crocodile that he brought up later, and um, I think you you quoted uh, Adam Clark's commentary right on the Bible that kind of make made the connection between Pharaoh and the crocodile. So could you talk a little bit more about that also? Yeah. So the crocodile comes into play in a couple of places uh, in Joseph Smith's uh, production. One is in facsimile one. Um, there's a picture of a crocodile. Um, and on facsimile one, Joseph Smith's explanation of the crocodile is that it is the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. Um, and then uh, in the text of the book of Abraham, and let me pull this up. Um, in the text of chapter one of the book of Abraham, uh, I think it's 121, I believe. Um, no, that's not right. Uh, give me just a second. I'll find it. Oh, Abraham 120. Um, yeah. So um, I'd have to, I'd have to review what, what Brett said on this. Um, but cause I don't think the text of the book of Abraham mentions anything about a crocodile. Um, but the, so the facsimile, what Brett has presented to me in the past, and I, I remember this a few years ago in our, one of our, one of our uh, written debates is um you know, that, that the crocodile uh, god of the Egyptians was Sobek, right? And um, the argument that's typically made is that uh, Sobek is an actual Egyptian god, um, and it's, a, it's an Egyptian god connected with Pharaoh, with the Pharaoh, with the king of Egypt. And so um, the fact that Joseph on facsimile one uh, correctly identified the crocodile as an idolatrous God of Pharaoh. Um, the argument is made that, Oh, he see, he was getting something about religion, you know, Egyptian religion, uh, correct. Um, but my point on that is, uh, that, uh, as I, as I stated in the debate, uh, Adam Clark, which is a commentary that, that Mormon scholars are coming around to, uh, recognizing that he made use of Smith made use of in his translation of, uh, the Bible, um, Adam Clark in several places mentions, but one place specifically, which I read out in the debate, mentions that uh, the crocodile is a divine, is a divine uh, being of the of the Egyptians, right? And as well as other animals, um, which we know. Um, so what I would point out that that I think is of critical importance here is not it's not that the crocodile is a, is a God of Pharaoh. That, that is something that Adam Clark calls out. So that's, that's something that Smith could have gotten from a contemporary source. It's not at all uh, necessary to assume that he could only have gotten that from revelation. I think the main point, however, is that if you want to make the argument that Smith, uh, Smith somehow understood something of Egyptian religion beyond what was available, available to him contemporarily, you would have to, show that Smith identified the crocodile as Sobek, which he does not. Um, and specifically in relation to the canopic jars on facsimile one, he does not get the correct names for those. Um, so he's not, he's not representing 
uh, Egyptian religion. Um, and again, he's not presenting anything about the crocodile that's not available to him in a source uh, in 18. Uh, 35 when he's working on that or 1842 when he's working on the, the facsimiles. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I thought that source that you, when you quoted Adam Clark's commentary, that was pretty interesting, especially like you said, there's been a lot of connections between most of the changes being verified in his Joseph Smith translation as being from Adam Clark's commentary. There's only one other thing that I had a question about. Um, so I had a friend, she's not a Christian, but she's just a friend of mine and she was watching the debate and she felt like, there was a question in one of the cross-examination periods where Brett, he, he had made assertions, I think, earlier in one of either in a rebuttal or in a, his opening statement where he had talked about he made this connection to this key or this, this rod. Um, and he asked you a question, something along the lines of how could you explain that, you know, represents authority or power? Could you go more into that to that point, if you remember it? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a particular... Uh, image on facsimile two. Um, and Joseph Smith describes, uh, let me just pull that up real quick and share, cause I think it will be uh, important for listeners to see it. Um, okay. Okay. Let me share my screen. I've got it up. All right. So what we're looking at here is this figure right here, figure two. Can you see it, Matthew? Yeah, I can see it. Okay. So Joseph Smith describes this figure as, uh, stands next to Kolob, called by the Egyptians Oliblish, which is the next grand governing creation near the celestial or the place where God resides, holding the key of power also pertaining to other planets as revealed from God to Abraham as he offered up sacrifice upon an altar which he had built unto the Lord. Okay, so this staff here is what uh, Brett is arguing is being referred to as the key of power. Right. And um, he makes a connection with with something Dr. Rittner says about what it actually represents in uh, in Egyptian uh, being the power, I think, of, of Pharaoh. Um, now, here's my question um, to me. And, and this is the point I made in the debate. To me, this looks like a scepter. Right. Um, and a scepter represents power. I think everybody would agree with that, that, you know, when a king holds a scepter, it's a representation of the king's power. Um, and that's, you know, that kind of thing is, is represented all throughout, um, you know, culture, even, even modern culture. You know, if, if you see in a movie, somebody holding a scepter, it's a, it's a symbol of power. You recognize that that person is holding something that's powerful, right? Um, you think about like, uh, even, even like Moses's staff, right? In, in, uh, even if you go to like the Hollywood production of, of the Ten Commandments, right, where he, he holds up the staff and brings it down into the ground and the, and the Red Sea parts, right? Um, it's, it's a staff or a scepter is, has always been a representation of power. So um, I don't think it's a leap for Smith to be looking at this image and recognize that as a scepter and say that, you know, say that it's a key of power. It's a, it's a representation of power, Um and it's not, um, I don't think it's remarkable for him to do so and then be, you know, correct that that's what it represents in Egyptian as well. So can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yep. Too many fail saves. Well, I was going to bring up, so it seemed like he started, correct me if I'm wrong, he started translating in 1835. Isn't that around when they received the papyri? Yeah. So at this point, he's what, 30 years old around there, 29, 30 years old, because he was born in 1805. 
Correct. So his entire life, he was raised on the King James Bible. And that's one thing I was, re- I was rewatching some videos with Dan Vogel this week. And he said that he says that Joseph Smith may not have been fluent in Egyptian, but he was fluent in King James. He's, he's fluent in the Bible. And um, so I, I looked at some verses in the Bible that do refer to the rod or staff referring to God's power or someone's power. And you brought up Moses and his staff. Um, there's another example in Esther. So the king or the, the queen could only approach the king's throne when he held out his royal scepter to her. So if he didn't hold the royal scepter out to them, then they couldn't approach the throne. Um, also, if the scepter was broken, it represented a loss of authority and position. So that's in Isaiah chapter 14, where it says, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows. So he's broken the staff of the wicked. He's basically break, broken down their authority. Uh, scepter is also used to symbolize God's rule. So in Psalm 45, 6, it says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Um, let's see. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that's, um, it also refers to prophetic p- passages. So in this verse, it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So this is a prophecy about Christ. And um, at his second coming, it also refers to how Jesus will rule them, rule the kingdoms, the nations of the world with an iron scepter. So she, she felt like that it wasn't, that it couldn't be assumed, but I think even just from the King James Bible, which Joseph Smith knew very well, you can show that this scepter or rod represents authority or power. So I think, I think that's something that I thought was important to bring up because she, she had kind of a question about that. Yeah. And that those are all really good points. Thank you for bringing those out. Um, I think it illuminates uh, the uh, just the ready, uh, readily available um, sources that Joseph Smith could have looked to to understand a scepter as power um, without having to uh, appeal to direct revelation. Um, and you know, one of the other things that that Brett kind of concedes uh, in in making his points is you know, there's a lot of and he even says it in the in the debate. There's a lot of text around. I think it's in specifically in reference to his point about the altar. There's a lot of text around the altar that, that kind of makes it difficult to uh, really nail that down as a hit. That's not the point Brett makes, but that's that's my point. Um, and the same is true here with figure two, right? Um, called by the Egyptians, Oliblish. Um, you know, Rittner calls out that that's Oliblish is just nonsense. It's it's nothing to do with with Egyptians with Egyptian. Um, so, you know, all of that, all of the other texts that Joseph Smith gives as a description of, of figure two doesn't, doesn't fit with the Egyptian. So to, to kind of key in on, well, he represented the, the scepter as like, you know, being held as a key of power. Again, it's, it's not a remarkable uh, connection. I, I don't think it's a connection that, that an educated person, and, and, you know, if you want to argue that Joseph Smith wasn't educated, his father was a, was a teacher. Um, you know, that's often brought out, well, you only had a third grade education. Well, back then, a third grade education was was, was pretty decent. And um, his his father was an educator. And I, I don't think based on what he produced that the argument that he was an ignorant person, completely an ignorant person, really stands up. He was someone who who was interested in studying, was interested in trying to learn. Um, and I think it's OK to point that out. Um, but what he presented, what he, what he presented as the writings of Abraham, uh, they're, they're not. So I hope, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse. Cause I think this is important for people who are who listen to the debate to, to 
to listen to this, but I think also we talked a little bit about how he made connections between the book of Abraham translated by Joseph Smith and the apocalypse of Abraham, which is a pseudepigraphal work. And I think it's, it's, he even admitted that this came out around the time of Christ. And so we don't have any copies of that apocalypse, as far as I understand that that date to before a hundred years BC. So the newest or the oldest one we have is around the time of Christ. And so that's several hundred years. That's over a thousand years after Abraham. And so, and, and we know it's pseudepigraphal because Abraham didn't write it, but it's attributed to earlier authors. Yeah. And let's, there were, sorry. Go ahead. I, mean, I was just going to say, let's, let's call out and, and define for our listeners who may not know what pseudepigrapha means, right? Um, it's, if you translate it literally, woodenly, it's false writing, right? Um, but, but, but really what it, what it means is it's, it's a writing that was, that was made and presented as a writing made by an important figure within Jewish culture, in this case, Abraham. Right. And so, but it's, but it's understood by scholars not to have been written by Abraham. Right. Because as you noted, it, it comes out during the second, second temple period, shortly before the time of, of Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's far, it itself is far too late to be the writing of Abraham. Um, and like you, like you pointed out, we don't have uh, manuscript history for it going back uh, further than that. And so that's why scholars place it in the, in the category that they call uh, pseudepigrapha. And a lot of, a lot of people um, kind of like the, the scholarly world uh, recognizes, you know, pseudepigraphal works as, as important to understanding uh, the cultural context of a particular time period, right? In this case, the second temple uh, period. Um, but sometimes when you, when the scholarly ways of talking about things get, gets translated kind of into, um, the, the more layperson's way of speaking about things, pseudepigrapha becomes, um, uh, forgery, right? Um, the, the idea that, that people have in their minds is that somebody was trying to, uh, foist a writing as authoritative, um, by giving it the, uh, the premature of Abraham. Um, and, and certainly that, that, you know, there is evidence of that being done. Um, and that, you know, that is what kind of like what the, um, the Maxwell Institute is trying to argue it, Joseph Smith was doing with the book of Abraham, that it's a pseudepigrapha. Um, now there's, there's a, there's a distinction that I'm trying to draw between kind of the way the scholars view pseudepigrapha and the way, you know, somebody who may be, uh, a lay person and, and angry might, might call something a forgery. Right. Um, so I think it's important to kind of tease that out. Um, but, but yeah, it's, yeah, I just think it's important to, to call out what pseudepig, what a pseudepigrapha, pseudepigra, pseudepigraphical work is, um, and, and why certain works are put in that category. It essentially it's, here's this work that purports to be written by Abraham. We can't date it to any earlier than 150 BC, for example. Uh, therefore, it, it cannot be the work of Abraham. There just isn't a manuscript history that would allow it allow us to trace it back to the actual patriarch Abraham. And so, um, you know, the, the book of Abraham by Joseph Smith does, it, you know, in, by, by clear definition, fall into that category. Um, where, where I see a major difference, however, is that Joseph Smith did have ancient papyri in his possession. And he did claim that those papyri 
were the writings of Abraham and Joseph, the biblical biblical patriarchs. And then he did produce what he claimed was a translation of those papyri. Um, And so efforts, I think efforts now by Mormon apologists uh, to try to distance the papyri from what Joseph Smith produced, um, I think are, are, I think they do damage to what Joseph Smith himself claimed he had in his possession and what his contemporaries believed he was producing. Um, I don't think his contemporaries would have believed he was not producing a representation in English of what was on the papyri in Egyptian characters. I think the the Kirtland Egyptian papers, the the Egyptian alphabet and grammar bear that out. Yeah, I was just about to say that 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 the fact that they we have the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language where they pointed to specific characters on the papyri and then gave explanatory passages saying what that meant. It like you said it does demonstrate that they were trying to do a more traditional translation. And there were, there were even, you know, certain, this mark would mean this and this mark would mean that. And they tried to explain everything out in, in the text. So it shows that they were trying to do a, a, a standard traditional translation. Um, oh, I think they point to the, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible as trying to say, well, see, he wasn't translating it from a text. It was more of a commentary. I hear that a lot from LDS apologists. And so they use that as an example that Joseph Smith thought that translation was a more fluid term that didn't necessarily mean taking one text and translating it from that language into English directly. But I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weak argument to me. Yeah. And let, you know, let's kind of bring it back to Brett's argument and then kind of where some of the neo Mormon apologists go. Um, So Brett's Brett's overall thesis, and he he stated this pretty clearly in the debate is that, uh, and really it, it, it felt to me like he was debating Rittner rather than me. Um, and that's okay because that's initially what uh, he wanted to talk about. Um, but um, you know his 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 case is that okay, so there are these there are these places where Joseph Smith seems to have gotten some things correct about Egyptian religion, um, and therefore it's not correct to say that Joseph Smith didn't get anything right. Um, and I think that's I think that's a fair case to make, but. Where I'm left with Brett is to ask the question, okay, so you've identified these 25 areas where you think there are correspondences between what Joseph Smith produced and uh, what the Egyptian actually means. What does that amount to when talking about the book of Abraham? Because uh, if if it is meant to show that Joseph Smith had by revelation a correct understanding of Egyptian, that's not demonstrable because of all of the other misses. So then you're left asking the question, okay, so if God was helping Joseph Smith to translate this, this papyri into English from Egyptian, why did he give him some things correct and many, many, many more other things incorrect? So you're left at the end of the day talking to Brett saying, okay, what, what does it amount to? It doesn't amount to a correct translation of the Egyptian, there may be these 25 correspondences that you pull out. But even when you dig into the details on those, I don't think they stand up. Um, And so unless you're willing to argue, unless Brett is willing to argue that all of the Egyptologists actually have it wrong and Smith had it right by revelation. And the only reason we don't see that now is because the Egyptologists are wrong. Well, that's a, that's a lot to swallow. 
And I don't think Brett is willing to make that argument. Um, but without that argument, you're really left saying to him, okay, so what does it amount to? Um, so then, you know, talking about where the, where the neo-Mormon apologists are going, um, they're, they're trying to call it pseudepigrapha uh, because it gives it a, a patina of respectability in the, in the scholarly world to do so. Um, but what does that mean? Uh, and this, and this comes out in a conversation between, uh, that I referenced in the debate between Carrie Muelstein and Terrell Givens, uh, two Mormon apologists. Uh, they're having a conversation, uh, on YouTube, uh, about, um, the book of Abraham. What, what is all of the evidence, uh, about the translation process and everything that's coming out now through the Joseph Smith papers project and the, the, the publication of the Kirtland Egyptian, uh, papers with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, all, all uh, information that was not publicly available until very recently. Um, what does that all mean? They're asked, they're talking with each other and, um, you know, they're, they're wrestling through the idea that, okay, Joseph Smith had these papyri. He said they were the writings of Abraham and Joseph. They are not. So if we're not going to understand him as a successful translator of Egyptian, then how do we understand him? And and they even end up going back and forth on whether or not it's credible to view him as himself not understanding what he was doing. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'm 10 years removed from having been uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now. Um, but if I were still a member and I was learning all of this stuff and reading all of this stuff. There is no way that I could hang around because it just, it's not, if jo if even Joseph Smith didn't understand what he was doing, uh, then, then what are you going to say about what he said? You're going to say he was mistaken about them being the writings of Abraham and Joseph. Um, you know, and, and, and you get into territory uh, with the neo-apologists where it's just like, yeah, we don't understand what he was doing. And he didn't seem to understand what he was doing, but it's still, it's still divine. It's still of God. It's still scripture. And I, I don't know that, that those conclusions follow from those kind of flimsy premises. Yeah. This is something I really struggled with when I was questioning is, is I forget which apologist said it, but um, might've been Gee, might've been Peterson, but they, they, they asserted basically the catalyst theory and they said, well, Joseph had the plates and he got a feeling and he translated it from them, but he often didn't even use the plates. So let's imagine it's the same thing with the, the papyri. He gets the papyri, he gets a feeling, you know, some kind of spiritual prompting to get these papyri, but they ultimately don't have anything to do with the final product, even though Joseph Smith thought they did. So he got a feeling and then, then and that was just the catalyst that started all this revelation off. And that, that didn't really didn't sit well with me because like you said, you open up your, the book of Abraham in your, your quad or your triple combination, it'll still say it's the translation from the, the papyri and it'll point to the facsimiles and say, this means this, this means that. So I think the only really way to deal with that is to just say we were wrong, you know, and the, the text has nothing to do with the papyri or kind of do as uh, Paul Gregerson kind of does. And we'll talk a little bit about that later is saying, well, the spiritual understanding is totally separated from the secular understanding, you know, like there's a secular face value reading of this text, but that's not what God was saying. You know, the, there's a spiritual underlying message that God gave Joseph Smith. So um, do you have any other thoughts about the debate overall that you want to add before we move on? No, I don't think so. All right. So moving on, we 
received some comments for the debate from our friend Jeremy Howard. He was on an episode with us before where we talked about, uh, what was it? It was uh, freedom of politics or what's that word? <laughs> well, what was the topic of it? Uh, it was kind of like freedom of religion, right? Freedom of religion. The, yeah. yeah, it was one of our article, articles of faith episode, uh, you know, where, uh, oh, is it 11? Um, you know, where we, uh, we something something about our own conscience yeah it's too late to to try to get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was it was freedom we, we claim of the privilege of worshiping god according to the dictates of our own conscience and we uh, extend yep. the same courtesy to others kind of idea yeah we had jeremy on to talk about that and his uh, his thoughts on uh primary secondary and tertiary uh doctrines within the christian faith yeah, he, he talked to us about the chart that he made, and they've made an updated version too. So go check out the Do Theology podcast, either on their website or on YouTube. They've they've got an updated discussion on that. Uh, so let's read his comments on the debate. I had them open. Okay, here we go. So I want to read it. Do you want me to read all of it or just parts of it? Uh, yeah, just go one, two, three, four. Yeah. Okay. So his first comment on the debate from Jeremy, he said the topic wasn't the best. Diving into the historical accuracy of a document from the 19th century doesn't exactly lend itself to the issues that lie at the heart of the matter. Within that topic, it's hard to make a straight line to what I refer to as the big four issues at the heart of Mormonism. And as a parenthetical note, he says, I've spoken about these and I'll be publishing an article on my website about them soon. If the topic were something more like, is it heretical to accept the book of Abraham as scripture? It would have been easier to discuss the major theological issues instead of sword fighting over details pertaining to an accurate translation. So what do you think about that comment, Paul? Yeah, I think it's a fair comment. Um, it definitely doesn't, it definitely led to a debate that was more focused on uh, historical issues than on doctrinal issues. Um, the topic for the debate was one that, that I chose and pitched to Brett. Um, in the, and it was, again, the question, is the book of Abraham ancient scripture? Um, the reason I chose that topic is because that, that was Joseph Smith's claim of what he had. He claimed he had the writings of Abraham by his own hand upon papyrus. So the historical question, the question of whether what he produced in English is an accurate representation of what is on the papyri, it, it, it's, it goes directly to the question of whether it can be considered scripture. Because if it's not what Joseph Smith represented it as, if the papyri aren't actually the writings of Abraham, but Joseph Smith represented them as the writings of Abraham, then uh, then it's not ancient scripture written by Abraham. And so that's that's the reason I chose that topic uh, to go into with Brett, and and, and also because it, it gave Brett the the opportunity to present his case. Um, one thing I will say about the case that Brett presented is that he didn't um, he did not attempt to present the case that the book of Abraham was ancient scripture. He, uh, when he summarized the topic of the debate at one point, um, he talked about inspired scripture, uh, which is something he had to do uh, given the case he was attempting to make, um, which is ultimately that the book of Abraham to him is scripture because Joseph Smith was a prophet and a seer and was inspired and was given revelation to produce it. Um, but again, that's not the original case that Joseph Smith attempted to make among his contemporaries, which was, hey, everybody, look, I'm going to put these papyri and mummies on display in Kirtland and later in Nauvoo. Um, and I'm going to show them not only to my followers, but I'm going to show them to anyone who comes to see uh, 
them. And I'm going to claim that they are the writings of Abraham and Joseph. And so uh, I thought it was important for, for Mormons to look at that case. Um, and it's, it's, it is the crux of the apologetic case for the book of Abraham is what the papyri actually are because of what Smith's claim was. Um, so I, I definitely understand where Jeremy is going with this from a, from the perspective of a Christian. Um, it's definitely more interesting to hear, okay, what are the doctrinal issues with the book of Abraham uh, that would bump up against Christian doctrine that would make it heretical to believe that the book of Abraham is scripture. Uh, but for a Mormon who believes in Smith as a seer who could reproduce in English ancient texts that were written in other languages, the crux of the argument is whether or not the papyri actually represent what Joseph Smith claimed they did. And the reason that's the crux of the uh, crux of the argument for Latter-day Saints is because it goes directly to the Book of Mormon. Uh, you cannot test the plates because they are not here. Um, whether or not you believe Smith ever had plates or whether you believe he produced plates that he allowed his witnesses to see, um, what, whatever you may believe about the plates, we cannot examine them now. So we cannot test to see, does the Book of Mormon accurately represent what may have been on the plates in another language, in Reformed Egyptian? But with the Book of Abraham, we can test that. And so that's why it's the crux of the argument. And that's why I chose the historical uh, approach to debate with bread. Right. Yeah, I think I agree. I think, I think both aspects are just looking at different sides of the same coin. Like you said, I think they're both, they both have theological implications. They both have historical implications. Mm -hmm. It's just, how do you look at it? And I, and I kind of agree that if it were me and I had to choose a topic, I'm not a great historian, <laughs> but uh, I think I could tap tackle the systematic theology aspect a little bit better. You know, I'm, I'm not saying I would do great, but that's how I would want to approach it because he could probably throw out some historical data that I'd be like, well, I don't know anything about that. So I don't know how to deal with that. So, but yeah, it's, it was an interesting comment. I hadn't really thought about that. So thanks Jeremy for that. Um, let's move on to the second one. He says, your demeanor was pretty reserved and quiet, which of course isn't bad at all. However, since Brett is confident and outspoken, you came across as uncertain of your position at times. Personality is such an unfair aspect of debating, but it's totally valid and a very real part of how people interpret the conversation. I got some feedback about having a grumpy demeanor in my debate with Kwaku, but it helped that he came across very childish in comparison. Aaron Shafawalaf got a ton of feedback about his demeanor in his last debate with Kwaku. It's tough, but it's a reality. So I'll, is it okay if I start off with just a short comment too? Um, I, I kind of noticed that too. I noticed that, but that's just your demeanor in general is that you're very calm and reserved and you're very thoughtful and you're able to think things through very well before you respond. And I find that that's what I respond to personally is someone who can think things through and give a very, very precise argumentation rather than someone who can present it very charismatically or very, you know, with a lot of pizzazz or a lot of confidence and bravado. I'm not saying that that's what Brett was doing. He, he was very, he knows how to do public speaking. I could tell he's someone who's very, you know, he knows how to work with the crowd, but I didn't think that that was a bad thing. The only thing that I would have commented on is it felt like in your opening statement, it felt like you had a lot of material to get through. And so I felt towards the end, like you were rushing very quickly and there was a lot of really heady topics to, to kind of wrap your head around. And so I felt like even I was like, even after having listened to the debate 
listening to it again, I was like, whoa, I got to pause and like, think about this for a second, you know, cause there was a lot of stuff. So that's the only thing I would, I would comment on uh, about that. Uh, so how would you, do you have any comments about uh, Jeremy's comment here? Yeah. Again, it's a good point. Um, this was uh, my very first uh, attempt at a public debate. Uh, so um, definitely have a lot to learn in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised about the reserved and quiet uh, comment, not because I don't already know that about myself, but um, because after after the debate, I kind of, you know, went and talked to my wife and she asked me how it went. And I, you know, you, you, I think you even, Matthew, had said, you know, that some of my comments were, were pretty... Uh, I'm trying to remember how you how you said it pretty strident or or, or how you phrased it. But, um, you know, and I, I did feel like I, you know, at times was uh, that way. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty reserved and quiet person. I'm very thoughtful. Um, and so that probably that definitely uh, came across. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I get that that's that's definitely something that can uh, can uh, win you. Uh, a debate or lose you a debate, right? Especially, um, I think what, what 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 was sort of challenging is that uh, this one's online, so I'm sitting here in my office, uh, looking at Brett, looking at at you and Michael as we were working through the debate on our Zoom call, um, and I know that you know the comments, the live comments, the live chat was kind of blowing up, and there were you know Michael was kind of moderating that and keeping track of that and keeping move, keeping that moving and questions were coming in. Um, but I'm not seeing any of that. And uh, I didn't have any of the feedback uh, that a speaker in a public debate in person would have from the audience. Um, so it's hard. It's kind of hard to know. Okay. You know uh, I think if you're speaking to people live, you know, you can kind of feel the crowd, right? Know when you need to really drive something home Um that, yeah, I didn't have any of that feedback. So, you know, it'd be interesting to do an in-person uh, live debate and and see how I do there and, and have that kind of have that feedback. Um, I, I, you know, I, I have been told I'm a good public speaker, so um, I think I probably would do okay with it. But yeah, this this was my first go round with, with such a thing. Um, in regards to your comment, Matthew, about uh, being rushed at the end of my, um, my opening statement. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, I, uh, you know, we set times for, for the statements and I, I looked up, um, you know, how many words uh, will fit in a 25 minute period of time. Right. Uh, so I knew exactly what I needed to, to kind of prepare and be ready to present. Um, one, one regret is that I wish I would have had time to uh, present some visuals um, because I think, you know, in an online debate uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, helps. Uh, so I wish I would have had time to present that. Uh, and prepare that. I just didn't. Um, and, and, in, and with regard to being rushed, yeah, I, I recognized at, at one point uh, that uh, my time was uh, getting short. So I began to speak faster to try to get through the end of my material. And, and you're right. Some of the, uh, it's towards the end of my opening statement where um, my doctrinal points about scripture were made. Um, and so that probably did not come across as strongly as it, as it should have. Um, and to be honest, it, it, I probably could have done a better job presenting that and preparing for preparing that argument. It, it, it was more of like a, a subsidiary argument to uh, my overall argument, which is if it's not, if the book of Abraham isn't ancient writings of Abraham, then it can't be considered ancient scripture. 
And so the doctrinal points of can it be considered scripture were kind of like a subsidiary, like I said, a subsidiary point to that. Um, and, you know, uh, a couple of days before uh, the debate, Brett asked if we could um, present some historical background on the on the book of Abraham that wouldn't count against either of us. That did actually open up uh, some room in my opening statement to kind of put in some more of that uh, stuff towards the end about the doctrinal points about scripture. Um, yeah, more time to more time to prepare might have been better. Uh, I think I did a fair job uh, with what I had. Yeah, no, I think you did great. I mean, it does. He did kind of respond to your the doctrinal approach of whether it's scripture or not by basically saying, "Well, we just have different opinions on what qualifies as a scripture," and like that's a bit. And I mean, I guess I agree. So I guess that, but you know, it kind of sinks that you put all that work and like I was like, "Yeah, he did a great job," but then he's like, "Well, we just don't agree on what what qualifies as scripture." <laughs> so. All right. Uh, so point number three. So Jeremy says, I wish you would have been more outspoken up front about the biblical realities that are on the line. If we even consider that the book of Abraham is scripture, it would have been good to hear more about the inerrancy authority and sufficiency of the Bible. But as I noted in the first comment, the topic kind of pigeonholed you into discussing historical accuracy of the document. So what do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. And um, it, maybe it could have been a better uh, format if it was a series of debates, right? Is the book of Abraham ancient? And then is the book of Abraham scripture um, where you could dig into more of the the biblical realities that might be on the line uh, in considering the book of Abraham as scripture. Um, but yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy's right. By, by including, um, you know, in the question, is it ancient scripture? By including scripture in there, uh, you, it does kind of put the, uh, put the expectation to the audience that you're going to really dig into that. And, and that, that really was a subsidiary uh, part of both of our arguments really from, from me and from Brett. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. So with the last point that Jeremy gave us, he says with those critiques out of the way, I should say that you seem to have well-organized material and you are well-studied. You combated Brett fairly. And I don't think anyone will walk away from that debate thinking, wow, the book of Abraham really is reliable. The fact that you are willing to put yourself out there and have the conversation publicly is encouraging and helps advance the Christian cause in LDS Christian dialogue. So uh, thank you, Jeremy, for that comment. Uh, do you have any response to that, Paul? Yeah, totally agree. I appreciate uh, Jeremy's feedback. Uh, I value his feedback, which is why I reached out to him and asked for it. Um, thankful that uh, as, a, as a friend and a mentor, he was willing to, to give that to me. Um, I think it's definitely helpful in thinking about any future debates I might be engaged in. So Jeremy, thank you for that. Great. All right. So we wanted to talk also briefly because after the debate, uh, Robert Boylan made some articles on his website, scriptural Mormonism, where he talked about the debate or he, or he referenced the debate. So there are two main articles. So should we read the, just the one at the top first in the document you gave and then go from there? Does that sound good to you? Yep. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So he has one topic or one article that he published on February 13th titled Pearl of Great Price Central, Sobek the God of Pharaoh, and a note on Adam Clark's purported influence on Joseph Smith. The article reads, an excellent website on the book of Abraham is Pearl of Great Price Central. One of their wonderful articles is Sobek the God of Pharaoh. Excuse me. In EndNote 11, we read the following about the claim forwarded recently by Paul Nurnberg that Joseph associated, this is Joseph Smith, associated the crocodile figure in facsimile one with the God of Pharaoh from Adam Clark's commentary on Exodus. One source contemporary to Joseph Smith did report that the crocodile or hippopotamus was the emblem of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and was one of their principal divinities. 
This source also reported that Pharaoh signifies a crocodile. Adam Clark, the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments. So that's his commentary. This Bible edition with Clark's notes was based on an eight-volume commentary series Clark published between 1810 and 1826. By contrast, the Book of Abraham says nothing about hippopotami and indicates that Pharaoh signifies king by royal blood, not crocodile. Furthermore, none of the archaeological or inscriptional evidence concerning Sobek's presence in northern Syria or his association with Egyptian kingship was available in Joseph Smith's lifetime. Uh, I think that was a quote from that article, right? The Sobek, the God of Pharaoh. And so. uh, Boylan continues, he says, on the purported use of Adam Clark by Joseph Smith in the production of the Joseph Smith translation, see Kent P. Jackson, some notes on Joseph Smith and Adam Clark. So what are your thoughts on that first article? So I think my first, the first thing I would want to point out is that Boylan seems to misunderstand uh, the argument that I was making, which is that um, it, it's not in relation to Abraham 120, right? Because um, it seems like he's wanting to say, okay, Pharaoh signifies king by royal blood, not crocodile. But that wasn't the point I was making from um, Adam Clark. I wasn't saying that uh, crocodile is Pharaoh. Uh, the point I was making is that, and let me let me grab the quote from Adam Clark because I think it's important to to read through it. All right. So uh, Adam Clark says, "quote It may be necessary to observe that all the Egyptian kings, whatever their own name was, took the surname of Pharaoh." when they came to the throne, a name which in its general acceptation signified the same as king or monarch, but in its literal meaning, as Beauchart has amply proved, it signifies a crocodile, which being a sacred animal among the Egyptians, the word might be added to their kings in order to procure them the greater reverence and respect. So Clark refers to uh, another scholar, uh, Beauchart. I haven't run down what he's actually referring to there um, as saying that, that, that Pharaoh signifies a crocodile. Um, so I, I guess I can see where Boylan is going with this. However, my, my point is not trying to make the case that Pharaoh means crocodile. That's not the point I'm trying to make from Adam Clark. The point I'm trying to make from Adam Clark is that there was a known connection between uh, Pharaoh and an Egyptian god, uh, an Egyptian crocodile god. Um, in Joseph Smith's lifetime, that was a, a source that was available to him that could have given him that information. So when he identifies, as I described earlier, uh, the figure on facsimile one as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh, and that figure is a crocodile on facsimile one, it's wholly understandable and possible that he got that from Adam Clark, that understanding that the crocodile in Egyptian religion represented a god of Pharaoh and was connected uh, closely with Pharaoh. So, um, you know, the, the, the point I made earlier, uh, Joseph Smith doesn't correctly identify the crocodile as Sobek. Um, and so, you know, whatever points are being made in, in the book of Abraham or the Pearl of Great Price central article, uh, about when and where Sobek was, was recognized in the time of Abraham or not in the time of Abraham in the area where, where Smith said Abraham was, um, all of that is irrelevant to the point I'm making, which is simply that uh, it's not a remarkable connection for Smith to identify a, a crocodile as a god of Pharaoh. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I and and even uh, Rittner in his book, he admits that when when there are hits, he does admit that there are hits. But at the same time, it's it's not a complete hit. It's like you said, the names weren't quite right, or the context wasn't quite right. So um, so I think we sh we should be you know 
we've admitted that you know when there's when there are things that he got right in the in the translation, we should note that. But there's so much more that he got wrong that we didn't really get time to address all of those, every single one of those misses. Uh, so let's move on to the second one. Uh, so it's just titled Paul Nurnberg Assuming, Never Proving, uh, Sola Scriptura to Refute the Theopneustas Nature of the Book of Abraham. So that's the second article that Boylan wrote. So this is also from February 13th, 2021. Um, so this article says, Brett Dennis, LDS, debated Paul Nurnberg, ex-LDS, who sadly has embraced Protestantism and then quotes Galatians 1 as a false gospel. As expected, uh, much of Nurnberg's quote-unquote arguments assume the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. For instance, around the 50-minute, 53-second mark, note the following comment. Uh, I think this is a comment from you. Uh, is he quoting you? Yeah, yeah, I think he's quoting you. Protestant Christians take the view stated plainly by R.C. Sproul, the only source and norm for all Christian knowledge is Holy Scripture. Uh, and then at the, so that's the end of that quote, and then at the 52-minute, 37-second mark, in time-honored manner of Protestant apologists, he assumes 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches Sola Scriptura without providing an iota of exegesis. To see how this is not the case and that Paul is guilty of cultic eisegesis of 2 Timothy 3.16, see another article, Not by Scripture Alone, a Latter-day Saint Refutation of Sola Scriptura. Uh, see, uh, Boylan uh, says on the Book of Abraham itself, I was hoping to debate a Catholic apologist on the Book of Abraham. But one, this Roman Catholic apologist wanted to debate all LDS scriptural texts in a singular debate, which would be akin to me wanting to debate all purported instances of papal error in a singular debate. And two, they refused to debate a Roman Catholic dogma, icon veneration. I have put online what would have been my opening statement, slides online. So that's the Book of Abraham, evidence for authenticity and it being scripture. There's a lot to unpack there, um, that last comment. The last bits were not really relevant, but uh, so, what, so what do you think about this article, Paul? Yeah, again, I would say Boylan is um, misunderstanding or misrepresenting my case. Um, I did not quote uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 to suggest that it teaches sola scriptura. The reason I did not do that is because at the time that 2 Timothy 3.16 was written, the New Testament canon was not complete. So... I don't believe that that is a uh, that 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 passage is a case for sola scriptura, um, and you know to to kind of jump back to his title, uh, Paul Nurnberg assuming never proving sola scriptura to refute the theopneustas nature of the Book of Abraham. Um, I didn't assume sola scriptura to refute the Book of Abraham uh, as scripture. Uh, my case was very specifically uh, Joseph Smith claimed X. It's not X, therefore not scripture. Um, so my, my case was not uh, sola scriptura, only the Bible, therefore book of Abraham is not scripture. So, so again, um, I know that, you know, sola scriptura is kind of a hobby horse for Boylan. Uh, and I look forward to hearing Jeremy Howard debate him on that topic. Um, but my point was never to assume sola scriptura in my argument. Um, where I referenced uh, Sproul and his statement about sola scriptura was simply to draw a distinction between the way Protestant Christians uh, reason to what is scripture versus how Latter-day Saints reason to what is scripture. Uh, and I presented myself, my case, I think, pretty clearly, in, and I think I presented the Latter-day Saint case fairly in referencing common consent and the way that 
works are accepted as scripture within the Latter-day Saint faith versus how works are accepted as scripture in the Protestant faith. And that was simply my point, not to assume sola scriptura and exclude the book of Abraham outright. Um, I think I, I, I also think I was fair to Latter-day Saints in, in saying, okay, let's look at the case Joseph Smith made for what he had. Let's answer the question, is it what he said he had? Uh, if it's not, then it's not ancient scripture uh, in, the, in the sense that it's not an ancient text written by the patriarch Abraham by revelation. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I didn't get that sense that that's what you were saying. I didn't I, when I when I was listening, but at the same time, a lot of times we'll hear what somebody's saying and kind of fill in the dots, either because they maybe they didn't explain it well enough, or maybe because that's just how their human brain works. We like to take shortcuts, mm-hmm. so maybe that's what happened there. Is that he thought you were using it to prove something when that wasn't what you were trying to do? So, uh, yeah, so great, glad we could address that. So also. After that, we wanted to address, we actually had some comments on our YouTube video after the fact. So it wasn't the live chat. It was the, it was a comment section on the YouTube video after the fact. And uh, so this, apparently he's a Latter-day Saint, Richard Holmes. He made a comment. So I will read those comments. So this is Richard Holmes' comment. The translation slash revelation from the obvious true prophet Joseph Smith was never like the uninvited apologists and anti-Mormons assumed, is supposed to concur with the translation from that of the Egyptologists. In other words, the translation slash revelation from Joseph Smith was never supposed to match up with that of the Egyptian mythology in order to be seen as being translated correctly. Joseph Smith translated in reverse back to a biblical text, the original. This is proper interpretation. And he also said, uh, so he said, Google quote, Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham, part one, why Egyptologists are wrong new close quote this is a video from one from one by the name of paul gregerson gregerson first debunked the egyptologists in 2014 a video debunking the lies from the anti-mormons like the above polner so those are the comments he left he left some other ones but those are the relevant ones so um we watched the video and so do we want to first comment about uh richard's comments and then about the video or however you want to do this paul yeah i think i think maybe just a few comments on richard's uh comments and and then um then we'll talk about the video um first of all i want to say you know i'm I'm glad richard listened i'm glad that uh he engaged uh and and provided his thoughts Uh, i appreciate that um like jeremy said uh these types of debates um especially when done respectfully uh help to further the dialogue between christians and latter-day saints um so i'm thankful that uh that richard listened in um you know he, he, he mentions that the Egyptologists are uninvited. Um, I, the one comment I would make on that is that uh, Latter-day Saint Egyptologists have looked at the papyri. Um, Carrie Muelstein, uh, Michael Rhodes, um, and you know they give their thoughts on them. And I think it, because of what we're dealing with, which are, uh, as, as I argued in the debate, uh, actual authentic ancient Egyptian papyri. Um, because of that's because that's what they are, uh, uninvited or not, uh, non Latter-day Saint Egyptologists, uh, I think are welcome to weigh in and say, okay, what does, what does this papyri that Joseph Smith mean, had mean? What did, what is it, what is it actually, how was it used within, uh, Egyptian religious practice and, and burial rites? Um, I think it's wholly, wholly, uh, respectable and right for them to do so. Um, it helps to further the understanding of what we're 
what we're looking at and what the claims that, uh, you know, what the claims were that Smith made. So um, I'm glad they weigh in um, because for me, um, it, it, it has allowed me to think through, you know, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Uh, is what I believe reasonable? Does it stand up to scrutiny? Uh, those are all questions that I asked myself uh, as a Latter-day Saint um, that ultimately helped lead me to uh, leave that faith uh, because I, I, I study and, and, and trust that, that God was leading me in my study um, because my, my desire was to stay close to God. Um, and through that, you know, it led me to, to see that, that I don't think the uh, claims of Joseph Smith are reliable, are or that or stand up to scrutiny. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that, that non, uh, Mormon Egyptologists, even though it's a, for them, for someone like Robert Rittner, it is a side project to the scholarship that he does normally within, uh, the Egyptological community. Um, but I'm glad that he does it. Yeah. Thanks for your comments. So I love the, I'll, just to bring it back in and to kind of round out what you were saying, the Reuben Clark quote, I always, I always liked as a faithful Latter-day Saint and a questioning Latter-day Saint and a former Latter-day Saint. Now he said that if we have the truth, it cannot be harmed by investigation. If we have not truth, it ought to be harmed. And there was also a quote I was trying to find from Brigham Young, uh, where he said something along the lines of, we have the Bible, the book of Mormon and the revelations. And he basically said, square them up with each other and judge whether they're basically, if they, they, they match up together. So he kind of was inviting this investigation, this, this scrutiny of what they believe to see if they matched. So to kind of assert that they're not invited, it's kind of like saying, well, butt out, this isn't, doesn't, doesn't belong to you. Well, that doesn't really match up with kind of what Brigham Young and other LDS prophets have invited them to do. Um, so in terms of the video that Paul Gregerson posted, so he has like seven or eight or maybe even nine now parts to his book of Abraham videos. Uh, so he, the one that Richard Holmes linked us to is just part one. And it's kind of an introduction to all the rest of his videos. And it's basically saying what Richard Holmes said. He says, uh, to quote him again, he says, in other words, the translation slash revelation from Joseph Smith was never supposed to match up with that of Egyptian mythology in order to be seen as being translated correctly. So what do you think about these comments and Paul Gregerson's video? Um, yeah, so having watched Paul Gregerson's video, uh, I think what I would say is that, you know, he kind of starts off his video by making some really grandiose claims about uh, his method of uh, arguing for the uh, scriptural nature of the book of Abraham, because he really doesn't argue uh, as Brett tries to do for the reliability and authenticity of the book of Abraham being in some way connected with the papyri. Uh, rather, um, he argues more from there being a, uh, uh, kind of an esoteric uh, spiritual connection between certain passages in the book of Abraham and passages in the Bible. Um, but his video really starts out, like I said, with some very grandiose claims. Here's my, you know, I'm Paul Gregerson. I've got this argument that no Christian, no uh, critic of the LDS church has ever been able to refute. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I don't respond well to those types of grandiose claims. Um, I just think it, it you know, and, and it's, the, I guess it's the uh, the bluster that I don't have. <laughs> it's just not my, not my personality. Um, but 
yeah, that, that's uh, my initial thought on the, on the first part of his video. Maybe we should share some of his video and talk about it. What do you think? Yeah, I'd be fine with that. Okay. All right. Let's see here. I think I've got Paul Gregerson's video up. So let's listen to the first little bit. Matthew, just give me a quick thumbs up when I start playing to make sure that it's uh, audio and video is working for you. It's a little bit quiet. Can you make it louder? My formula. Now I'm adding to it. I'm going to take that formula, which comes from the book of Abraham and all the symbolism, and I'm going to connect it to your Bible, specifically the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and calculate the greatest mystery that the world has ever known, the beast, the understanding of the symbolism of Daniel and John the Revelator for the first time in world history to explain the 666 and how this puzzle goes together for the first time. Critics of the LDS Church, this is your big shot. This is your big chance to make a Mormon look foolish. If I don't have this put together correctly, mathematically synchronized, this is your chance to make a Mormon look like an idiot. So I challenge you right now, and all others who want to prove they wrong, go for it. The big controversy over this LDS book of Abraham is manufactured by misinformation centered around these Egyptian-style facsimiles that Joseph Smith added to the book. Let's take a look at them for a minute. So the success of misinformation, as far as fooling many people, only works if you fail to read the prophet's context, which explains why he added pagan pictures into a Hebrew text, which he claimed was just as much scripture as the Holy Bible. Wouldn't this be like putting pictures of Zeus or Baal or Buddha into a copy of the Bible? That's idol worship, isn't it? So this is obviously one of the things that made Joseph Smith a great big target for today's LDS critics. Those same critics, however, don't seem to care or want to ask why he added these facts facsimiles to the book. But today, we'll read and try to understand why. Clearly, in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, the prophet tells us exactly why he added these pagan figures. So that you may have an understanding of these false gods. I have given you the fashion of them figures at the beginning. In other words, he added these figures at the beginning so that you may have an understanding of how these false gods are fashioned. The context of fashion would mean copy or counterfeit. Are not false gods counterfeits of the true God? So let's take a look here. I for one have a hard time understanding why people are confused here. The text is clear. The Egyptians copied the patriarchal priesthood order. They were seeking to earnestly imitate the order of both Adam and Noah. Imitate means counterfeit in this text. This brought upon Egypt a curse of idolatry because of their imitating or their counterfeiting of God's authority, which cursed the land of Egypt with a lie, Abraham 1 and 24. All right, we'll just stop there for a second and make some comments. So I remember uh, when I first clicked the link from our listener's comment uh, and started watching this video from Paul Gregerson, uh, it kind of caught me by surprise, his argument. He, uh, and, and Matthew, correct me if you think I'm misunderstanding him. He seems to be arguing that Smith added the facsimiles to the book of Abraham to demonstrate how the Egyptians copied the authentic and true religion, uh, tried to counterfeit it, right? And he cites to Book of Abraham, chapter 1, verse 14, as being the words of Smith explaining why he included the facsimiles. That's, am I understanding his argument correctly, do you think? That's that's what I understood um, pretty much, that, that, there, that there was this original worship and that, like you said, the Egyptians tried to copy that worship with their false gods and idols. And so Joseph Smith wasn't trying to translate to what the Egyptians believed. He was trying to get back to what 
was originally copied by the Egyptians. Okay. Yeah. I think we, I think we both are understanding correctly what uh, Paul Gregerson is arguing. Um, I'm going to share my screen again to look at the actual text of the book of Abraham uh, and the surrounding verses to the one he's quoting. All right. So here's uh, book of Abraham, chapter one. He quoted uh, verse 14. If you look at this chapter, uh, it begins um, in the land of the Chaldeans at the residence of my father, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. So the, the narrative starts out as a first person account of Abraham. Um, and then you continue on through here and Abraham describes his desire to uh, have the priesthood of the fathers, uh, be a person of righteousness, um, more and more about the fathers. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize what's being said here. I'm just trying to make the case that all of this is presented by Smith as a first person account of Abraham, which is consistent with, with Smith's claim that what he had on the papyri were um, the writings of Abraham. If you get to verse 14 and you're going to assert that this is Joseph Smith making an editorial aside, uh, sorry, um, if you're going to assume that verse 14 is Joseph Smith making an editorial aside for why he included the facsimiles, I, I just can't buy that, that argument. Um, because within the narrative of what Joseph Smith produced, this is Abraham explaining why he included the facsimiles, which are purported to be, specifically with reference to facsimile one, which is purported to be Abraham on what he's saying. Uh, where is that? Um, he calls it a bed, like unto a bedstead here in verse 13, right? The, the altar that Abraham is purportedly being sacrificed on in facsimile one is referenced as being after the form of a bedstead, as was had among the Chaldeans. It stood before the gods of Elkena, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, and also a god likened to that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here, Smith is just reproducing his descriptions of facsimile one. And I just don't think it, it holds to argue that verse 14 is Smith making an editorial aside for why he included the facsimile. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, maybe... He might still, so he may be asserting that it's, that's not an editorial insert in verse 14 from Smith. He might be asserting that, I'm trying to understand, maybe he was saying that it, it was meant to be written in the text by Abraham. However, the translation that Joseph Smith gave us doesn't match up with the Egyptologist's translation, but that that was intended from the beginning. But then that doesn't make sense to me because the gods that Abraham points to in here, this Elkanah, Libna. Mamakra and Korash, they don't have any corresponding connection to any actual idolatrous gods of Pharaoh, right? No. So Abraham is still saying here that these are the names of idolatrous gods of Pharaoh. But what it sounds like he was saying is that the gods that were the idolatrous gods in the original facsimiles were not what was originally intended by Abraham. Do you, do you see what I mean? I think that's what he's saying. Because he, he says, why would you include idolatrous pagan gods in your scriptures? Isn't that like basically telling people to do pagan worship? But in the text itself, Abraham explains why he includes it in there. He doesn't include them in there to worship them. He includes them as part of the historical narrative of saying, I was put on this altar. You know, they were going to sacrifice me to their gods. And so it's just, it's there as like a historical recounting of the events. It's, it's not there to say, here's these, here's these 
idolatrous gods that you should worship. So I was confused why he made that argument. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do see what you mean because I, I'm confused by it as well. Um, I'm trying to understand why why Paul Gregerson would. Uh, yeah, it just it just doesn't make sense. It, I, I yeah. yeah, I can't make sense of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little confusing. I've I've actually tried interacting with him before in the past, and it it, it was a it was a struggle. So right. um, let's go back and see what else he might say. Yeah, see if it gets any clearer. And. Is he not telling us that these facsimiles are counterfeits? They're frauds. It's all about a scam. This is not about Joseph Smith translating these things into English, translating paganism into LDS scripture. This is about exposing a fraud. Okay, I want to stop there for just a minute and um, talk about what he said there. He's, he talks about the uh, facsimiles being a fraud. And this, this is why his argument is hard for me to understand uh, because he seems to want to be uh, distancing the facsimiles from uh, from the book of Abraham. Like they're being included to show how the Egyptians tried to steal the true religion. That's why either Joseph Smith or Abraham, depending on, I'd, I'd love to get Paul Gregerson's thoughts on when he says the prophet, does he mean Smith or does he mean Abraham? Um, but they're being included to show uh, the, the idolatrous nature of the Egyptians. But what doesn't make sense about it is that facsimile one and Joseph Smith's explanation of it is uh, Abraham being uh, sacrificed or, or being close to sacrifice because we know he wasn't, but, but being close to sacrifice on an Egyptian altar by an Egyptian priest uh, in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, right? Um, the uh, Egyptologists have told us that it, this is a common funerary text. Um, some of the elements are missing from the uh, they're, they're damaged. The papyri scroll or the papyri fragments we have of facsimile one are damaged. So Smith uh, recreated, uh, basically pasted them to a piece of paper and drew in where the holes were, uh, what he thought was there. Uh, and that is not correct. For example, you see in the video here by figure three, uh, this human head uh, in many other representations of this scene in Egyptian funerary texts, this is a jackal head of Anubis. Um, and so he seems to want to be arguing that, uh, and, and I think it, I think it's an attempt, it's another attempt to distance the facsimiles from what Smith produced. Um, and the reason, the reason Mormon apologists do this is because of the, the crux of the argument of our debate. When you dig into the details of the facsimiles, the, the papyri that are extant that we have and can be examined, what Smith produced does not represent what is there. This is a somewhat convoluted argument to try to get around that, I think. Um, yeah. So my, what do you think about my commentary there, Matthew? Yeah, I agree. It's it's like if, if you just read the text and compare it to the facsimiles, it, it, it seems like it's a seamless narrative. You know, it's almost like a, when you write a children's book, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just trying to boil it down. You have a children's book and you have the picture, the picture should match the text. If the picture doesn't match the text, the kid's going to get confused. And so when you just read the explanation that Joseph Smith had of the facsimiles versus the text, they match. So this explanation that the facsimiles are a fraud and they're not actually what they're supposed to be, or, you know, Joseph Smith was translating it something else, or he sh he's, you know, has nothing to do with the text. It just doesn't make sense. It just, I just can't, I can't understand why, how you can make that assertion. Unless yeah. if you unless if you go back to what we were talking about before, and a lot of Mormon apologists are saying 
Joseph Smith didn't know what it was that he was translating. He thought he was translating from the papyri, but really he was getting something else. Hmm. And it seems, and it seems like it, that's what, that's the vibe that I got from um, Mr. Gregerson here is that what he's saying is that what, what the Egyptologists can actually translate and verify is not what Joseph Smith was intending to produce. And when you, when you make that assertion, it goes into the realm of, well, what we're, what we're claiming here is unfalsifiable. This is a completely spiritual document. And so there's no way that you can actually disprove it. And at that point, it's a, it's a matter of faith. And there, you know, you, you can't really debate someone that says, well, this is just what I believe, you know, but, but that's not what Joseph Smith was saying. He, he seemed to be saying that this is something that you can actually verify by translation. You know, this is an actual historical document that I'm translating, which can be, which is falsifiable. But what he and other apologists seem to be saying is that no, not part or all of it is not even related to the actual papyri itself, which makes it unfalsifiable. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, simile one is directly tied to uh, book of Abraham chapter one, verse 14, which Mr. Gregerson quotes from um, where, it, as you were saying in a, in a seamless narrative, it seems to be Abraham saying, Hey, I'm including this drawing of me being sacrificed. So you can understand what I'm talking about with the, with, you know, being sacrificed to these idolatrous gods. Um, and if, if, if that's the case, then, okay. So let's, let's go back and talk about, okay. So the argument that Gregerson and some others seem to want to make is the book of Abraham English text is representative truly of what Abraham wrote. The papyri, including the facsimiles represent a corrupted copy Okay, and this is this is where our listener Richard gets into, um, you know, calling me dishonest, and and you know what, I'm okay with that, uh, not because I think I'm dishonest, but I, I get that maybe from his perspective he thinks that I am. But let me let me explain myself. Um, I'm not unaware of the argument that uh, that is being made there that the fact that the papyri maybe represent a corrupted copy of what Abraham actually wrote. Um, I'm not aware. I'm not unaware of it because it's presented in the Pearl of Great Price student manual that I have from from my time uh, as a missionary uh, when I ordered the the LDS Institute manuals to better understand what I believed. Um, I've always been somebody who wanted to study and understand and 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 believe uh, in things that were uh, verifiable. Um, and so I was I was studious as a mission LDS missionary. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm aware that that argument is made both there and in the uh, recent uh, church essay that we talked about extensively in, in the debate. Um, so the, the claim is made that, you know, the papyri represent a corruption, a later corruption, later corrupted copy of, of Abraham's narrative uh, that Smith restored. Um, to your point, Matthew, that is completely uh, unfalsifiable. There's nothing you could do to argue against that because... Um, you know, you, how, how are you going to do it? <laughs> um, now, you know, to Mr. To Mr. Gregerson's kind of bluster, um, what I would say to that is, uh, I don't think it comports with what Smith presented to his contemporaries. Um, I don't think Smith's contemporaries would have made these convoluted arguments uh, that, that modern LDS apologists make. They believed that what Smith had, he was representing in English what was on the papyri. And back then, that was unfalsifiable because there was no one in the United States 
who, or the world really, who truly understood Egyptian uh, until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which comes after Smith's production of the Book of Abraham. So um, in both cases, what the LDS want to present is a, is a completely unfalsifiable claim. And, um, you know, that's when you, when you think about the LDS faith being a religion that claims that uh, the biblical text was corrupted by scribal errors uh, to the, to such an extent that uh, plain and precious truths are missing um, to such an extent that those plain and precious truths would have to be restored to Joseph Smith. Uh, all of these are claims made by Joseph Smith. Uh, all of these are claims that are falsifiable when you actually look at what Smith produced compared with um, what we have in the papyri with regard to the book of Abraham or what we have in the uh, transmission and, and uh, documentary evidence that we have for the Bible, the biblical texts, uh, Smith's uh, corrections in the JST uh, aren't, aren't uh, supported by, um, by his claims. So, you know, yeah, unfalsifiable claims. I, I don't deal in those anymore. Right. Yeah. So it's, I, I tried talking to him. I tried talking to Mr. Anderson about that pretty much because in later videos, he makes connections between uh, figures nine through 11 in facsimile number two and points that to scriptures that just happen to have the verse numbers nine through 11. And I'm like, well, you know that when God gave scripture, he didn't give verse numbers. So, you know, how, how, how does that work? You know, and he's and it was, it was, it was difficult trying to talk to him because it, it was kind of like that same thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, there's, there's no way to really refute somebody who makes that assertion. Yeah. So. Do we need to go on? Do you think with this video or do you think the crux of his argument has been addressed? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably pretty good. I think yep. we pretty much addressed it. We, we could do like a, Oh, we could do like a nine part series where we just watch the entire videos <laughs> and address everything. <laughs> it gets pretty interesting towards the end. He's also got a video where the book of Abraham predicted nine 11. I think we should, oh. we should, we should talk about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does seem he can, he kind of goes into like this whole idea that the Book of Abraham predicts uh, end times, right? It's it's mm -hmm. eschatological. I don't I don't remember reading anything in the Book of Abraham that that goes there, but he finds it. Yeah, it's entertaining, but not really a uh, historical. <laughs> yeah, and and not really a solid uh, method to exegete a text. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's pretty much all we wanted to talk about. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up? Nope. Just want to thank, uh, thank our listeners for tuning in and listening to the debate. And of course, let us know as we, as we said at the end of the debate, if there's other topics you want to hear us debate, we'll try to find uh, Latter-day Saints willing to talk to us about them. Yep. And if you, if anybody else has any more comments about the debate or about this episode, they can leave it in our Facebook group or they can leave it on the YouTube channel. So there's places they can contact us and we love, we love any kind of responses. So just let us know. So thank you for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time.